Hi. <laughs> the mic's on me tonight. So, did you notice that? <laughs> I'm the, uh, the squishy heart teacher, so... Uh, <laughs> there's been a, a lot of <laughs> tender sharing that's been coming up recently and as part of the nature of a few days into the retreat and well we're well into the retreat and it's always amazing to me that that's what happens it's almost inevitable that as we get settled in to practice with our experience the mind has time to really be with what's happening, the natural processes to to feel and to feel the the heart. And I was thinking how it's so easy to lose touch even that we have a heart. Oftentimes we're just moving around in a way that forgets the sensitive being that we are and that we're surrounded by. We're surrounded by beings that have hearts and it's just so easy to overlook that when we're rushing about and caught into the general story and flow of our life. So I thought tonight I'd share some of the, the lessons that I have learned on the, on the way, and some of it will have some heart in it because I've got a squishy heart, and some of it will have wisdom because my teacher was very wisdom-based. We'll, we'll just see what, what comes out of it. Um, well, before I get into that, I was remembering that I had just recently got a new phone, and I was opening up the phone, and as I was going through that process, my old phone's cracked, and, and uh, you know, it's been that way for quite a while, and here is this shiny new phone. Oh uh, my God, it's so interesting how the packaging makes it look as if I'm going to have this shiny new phone forever. <laughs> and nowhere on the packaging does it say, you know, this phone is impermanent. <laughs> <laughs> this phone may cause you frustration. <laughs> and maybe this isn't even really a phone in the end. <laughs> It's, it too will it, will, it will go its way. And so much of life is like that, right? The packaging of life says things are, are beautiful and, and permanent and can bring us a sense of satisfaction and we just don't, we don't see the way things are. Because of the presentation, you know, the society doesn't intend to, often maybe, maybe does at times, to give the wrong message. And yet that isn't, it isn't what's so apparent, that the reality of things doesn't just shine forth. We have to actually do a practice that starts to bring us into what's closer to reality. And that that's, takes time, takes commitment, takes a willingness. And... Well, along those lines, yeah, there's no manual, or at least we don't get a manual when we come into the world. 
And what, what is the manual of this body and this mind? And there's no manual about aging or about the dying process or about losing loved ones. And yeah, it's, um, life has got all of its conditions and, and events. And I think one of the things that I so appreciate about the Dharma is that it is that. It is a manual in some ways that, that tells us very clearly this is what's going on. And this is the reason why there's suffering. And that there's a way out of that process of not knowing or being caught in confusion and doubt. And, and that when the path is walked, there's a sense of freedom and liberation of the heart and mind. That without that manual, we'd really be in very... It's just a life of chance, you know, a life of circumstances, whether or not we, we bump into fortune or misfortune. And when we walk a path, it's very clear. As we walk a path, we can actually move the direction of our life towards less suffering. I read recently that Bhikkhu Bodhi described a spiritual path as something deep and vast, that it's not a trickle. It's not something you just get your toes wet in. Right? It's something that you can really soak in and explore, and it's wide and deep. And So that's what we're doing together, practicing and talking and sharing our stories and things that come up and the challenges and a lot of clear seeing. And that's so confirming to me is just when you share your stories, just how much can be seen and known about, our, about the mind and body. So growing up, for me, I grew up in a pretty happy household, so conditions were pretty good. But I was in an environment where there's a lot of expectations and, and pressures to succeed and excel to accomplish, um, and I f- slowly over time, it was I could just feel I was losing a sense of connection to my core nature, and I didn't notice it. It took years and years for me to really recognize that, but it was slowly getting lost in, in a sense of not knowing myself or not knowing even if I tried to look, where to look. I couldn't find what was truly meaningful to me. And so what I, the way I responded to the challenges that I was facing was, you know, I, I could do what life was expecting of me. I could take on the, you know, the, the roles that were, were asked of me, the, the training. I was really good at training. I was very good at sports and athletics. I knew how to do the job that was being asked of me. And yet... Somehow, I think what's asked of us, you know, in family and in our lives can take us very far away from what is of most value and of of deepest meaning. And I think as we as we slowly lose that connection of our own life and that intimacy, it's like we slowly start to close down pieces of our of our own nature 
And some of that is, you know, naturally through the process of not knowing how to respond, sort of the reactivity of our mind, that when we meet with misfortune, we have fear and we, we would, you know, we might close that part of our, of our experience down or, you know, we only try and get some uh, more experiences of pleasure and happiness. And there's an analogy that one teacher had shared that really has stuck with me that our life as we come into the world is like this beautiful sheet of paper. You know, it's nice and open. And that as we go through the various experiences, things that damage us and we pull back from the, the, the only way that we find to make our way through the world, you know, can be sometimes to really withdraw and retract. And then as we do that, we start folding this paper down. You know, one fold here, one point, and fold it again. And fold it again, and all that out of a kind of a sense of what... Uh, can protect us, and yet what we find is, as that folding process happens, we're losing access to the fullness of our life, the richness that sort of is open and vulnerable. And I think in the practice, what we're in some ways doing is letting this vulnerability open back up, that it's okay to be with these difficulties. We start to really feel into places that have gone numb and cold and and it's kind of a life-giving process and it hurts it's you know it's like being as a child going out and playing in the snow and in the cold and you go out and you play out and, and you kind of lose track of time and the body gets very numb and that painful process sometimes as when I'd come back indoors and you know getting the mittens off and getting the kind of life force back into the hands is this I don't know if you remember that kind of feeling. But it's very unpleasant at times. Yeah, that's what we need to go through. You know, how do we regain access to, to that feeling? So there is a couple episodes in... Um, you know, as a child growing up that, that showed me the potential, that sort of stuck with me as to what was possible in this human life. There's one, um, when I was 10 years old, I remember going, as, I'm, as I was getting ready for school, this is in so 1982, and you might remember this, but it was a local event for me, so it was really, it was very impactful, and it was on the local news, and uh, it was in the wintertime, and a plane had hit a bridge and landed into the Potomac, and I grew up in the Maryland area, and so the Potomac River is right there. And the news um, cameras were quickly on the scene as, and started showing what was happening. And because the plane didn't get very high, there was actually a lot of survivors that were in the water, and they were showing the rescue that was ongoing at that time, and there was a helicopter that was had dropped a rope down to the waters, sort of a life preserver, and there was one man in the water who got a hold of it, and the water was, you know, it was ice and snow in the water. And this was, so there was a few people that were in the water, and he, he looked around and, and grabbed someone and gave him the, the life preserver, and they pulled that person out, and they sent it back down. And he did that again and again. 
And then at some point he went down underwater and pulled someone up from down below. And he went down again, and he never came back up. That's very moving for me. Um, See, it's the first time I'd seen that kind of um, selflessness. Of it was really possible to care that deeply about other beings. You know, up until that point, all I had ever seen in life was actions that really look out for their, our own best interest. Or if we're in a state of fear, to get out of that as quickly as possible. And here was, here was someone that was just spontaneously serving others. There's a, a video that... Um, and watched recently of uh, the Dalai Lama giving a talk. I had shown this to Steve recently. And um, he was talking about the nature of, of bodhicitta, of, of serving, selflessly serving others, and, and the beauty of offering that teaching to, this, to the group that he was offering it to. And the rare gift it is to hear the teachings of, of compassionate action, of putting others before, your, before oneself. And just in saying those, those two sentences, he just stopped and broke down crying. Just an immediate, spontaneous feeling of how beautiful that is to have that kind of uh, capacity in the heart that's that open you know, that vulnerable. And uh, so there was that. And then another time, a little bit later on, um, I'd seen an image of a monk that many of you know, you have seen those images of monks that um, in protesting, light themselves on fire and self-immolate. And I didn't know what the purpose was, what, what he was trying to do. And it was just a static image, it was a photograph. But I was, I was just, I couldn't believe that one could sit there and be on fire and have that capacity to not react. That there was a stillness in the capacity of the mind. And that sort of stayed with me, you know, as I was growing up and both of those things just really standing out as to this human potential. There is such incredible potential that we have. And it doesn't have to be in that kind of extraordinary way. It's really in the very ordinary conditions of our lives. But sometimes it helps to just see how beautiful it is, what really is possible. about the nature of compassion, uh, Minja Rinpoche 
I mentioned a couple days ago. So he said, the best part of all, he's talking now about practice, he he says, is that no matter how long you meditate or what technique you use, every technique of meditation ultimately generates compassion. Whether we're aware of it or not, whenever you look at your mind, you can't help but recognize your similarity to those around you. When you see your own desire to be happy, you can't avoid seeing the same desire in others. And when you look clearly at your own fear, anger, or aversion, you can't help but see that, that everyone around you feels the same fear, anger, and aversion. When you look out at your own mind, when you look at your own mind, all the imaginary differences between yourself and others automatically dissolve and the ancient prayer of the four measurables becomes as natural and persistent as as your own heartbeat. May all sentient beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all sentient beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all sentient beings have joy and the causes of joy. And may all sentient beings remain in great equanimity, equanimity, free from attachment and aversion. So as um, time went by, went through college and you know, just as kind of lost, I think, as most college students were, not knowing myself, not knowing direction, and um, still feeling the incredible amount of, of expectation and pressure. And, um, for me, it was in the form of, uh, you know, being professional in the world. And, you know, so, you know, I ended up... Um, in medical school, a few years later, after going through a few experiences, and I was just absolutely kind of sad at my, at my limit. It felt like the um, the amount of stress and anxiety, and even though I was being told that you know I had made it, I was in a great school in New York, and we we're at the peak, you know, we're at the top. This is this is it. You've done it by these professors. It was amazing. You know, all I saw around me was confusion, you know, and competition and self-centeredness, lack of wisdom. You know, there was all the good stuff. There was a lot of compassion and caring. But there wasn't really the place that I felt like where I wanted my life to get to if I was looking forward. And so I was really struggled with that for quite a while and for a few years in schooling and kind of reached a peak moment where it really stood out for me. I was on the streets, I went outside and was at the street corner and this, the uh, street signal, the pedestrian signal said, don't walk. And I just, I lost it. And I thought, if one more thing tells me what to do. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
And I, I had all this, this kind of rage and aversion, and 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 I and and I thought, my God, I'm lost. I'm. I. This is. I just. I'm. I don't know. I don't know what's going on anymore. Here I was being overwhelmed by a street signal. <laughs> that was, you know, it's for my benefit. And yet I just felt it as being another thing telling me what to do. As I look back on it now, it's so interesting. All the misperceptions, the wrong views that are happening in that moment. And yet it's just because the mind doesn't know how to see what's going on. The radical difference that makes. I wanted to read something from Joseph Goldstein in his latest book, which if you don't have this book, it's fantastic. It's called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. It's his sort of life's collection of teachings and It's the tome that's really is worth reading. So So first he quotes the Buddha talking about right right view and the the effects of wrong view. So from the Buddha, bhikkhus, and bhikkhus, Joseph often reminds people, is really anyone that's on the path. So us as practitioners. Bhikkhus, I do not even... I do not see even a single thing so blameworthy as wrong view. Wrong view is the worst of things that are blameworthy. And Joseph says, why does the Buddha make such a strong declaration about this wrong view and wrong view of self? It is because so many of our unwholesome actions with our attendant karmic results are born from it. As long as this view is the central understanding of our lives, and it is for most people, we spend energy and effort gratifying the self, defending it, holding on to it. And yet all of this potent karmic activity is revolving around something that isn't even there. This is the obscuring power of delusion. You know, so you know, life doesn't follow the script, you know, that we have in mind for ourselves. I don't think anyone hopes, at least initially, to get old. You know, we don't hope for the inevitable loss that comes, the overwhelm that we feel, the pressures that we feel, the loss of control from life's circumstances. You know, there's just so much stuff that we each in our own life story are moving through. And there's something very beautiful about the nature of um, the teachings of Dukkha as being so universal. It's what truly connects us as beings. And we all know this truth. The more we sit with it, the more it opens our hearts and we see each other in that light. And so the script 
for me, changed you know pretty radically. I signed the papers of um, I'm out of here. It's <laughs> um, hard for my parents, of course, hopes and dreams, their script for my life. Uh, wasn't that I would be at that age without any direction. Yeah, so what do you do when you're mid-twenties and don't know what's going on? So I went to India. (laughs) 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 And I had the fortune, you know, circumstances that I could go. And I know that's, that was a blessing in my own life that that I did, wasn't in debt. My parents were able to, to cover my expenses and that has been a deep source of gratitude. But I needed to find something, and so I really I went off, and before long I was dressed like a sadhu, with long dreads, long beard, a yellow longi, and I was walking around barefoot in India, looking for something. And I saw other people that were looking, that's what they did, so I thought, okay. <laughs> There's got to be something to this. So, so I spent my time, put in my hours looking and looking. And again, you know, without, without a clarity of view, there's no way to really begin to, to understand this life, you know, this life, this mind. And all I was really doing was, was still in that process of, of running, you know, trying to, trying to get away from my own suffering far enough, and maybe by letting go of my culture, letting go of my family, circumstances, whatever it was, that I could, I could find my peace. So Pema Chodron had a nice quote that reminded me of what I was up to. <laughs> She says, nothing ever really attacks us except our own confusion. Perhaps there is no solid obstacle except our own need to protect ourselves from being touched. Maybe the only enemy is that we don't like the way reality is now and therefore wish it would go away fast. But what we find as practitioners is that nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. If we run a hundred miles an hour to the other end of the continent, or to India, (laughs) in order to get away from the obstacle, we find the very same problem waiting for us when we arrive. It just keeps returning with new names, forms, manifestations, until we learn whatever it has to teach us about where we are separating ourselves from reality, how we are pulling back instead of opening up, closing down instead of allowing ourselves to experience fully whatever we encounter without hesitating or retreating into ourselves. So I... Eventually, um, just through various conversations, heard about meditation, and just 
something started coming back in my mind as to the old memories I had and some possibility of some some way. And so it was with my, my brother, one of my brothers at the time, my younger brother. And so we decided, okay, let's do, let's, let's do this thing. They call meditation. Let's go see what that's all about. And so we were in India. And I remember feeling before this retreat, um, well, a lot of fear. And I said, but what if this changes me? to my brother <laughs> and he said and we were both now with dreads and beards and, <laughs> and he said would that be so bad <laughs> and so on we went right so that's the first first retreat and within a few days the things would not for me be the same you know, it was one of those retreats that just opens the doors and um, you know we get those little those, those glimpses that tell us oh the, the reality that I've been believing and conceiving is not the reality that there is and once you really start to notice that it's it's can't forget it and that's as the path keeps going and leads us onwards and just thinking, uh, I wrote down to read this quote by Carl Rogers, who said, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. And as, you know, so much of the languaging that we've been using about the attitude of accepting, accepting has that paradox in it that when we do accept that possibility for transformation and change is possible. And yet, you know, when we, as I was finding, trying to change my life by running or by doing, by, by, you know, not looking in the right places, there's no hope for that kind of, that kind of deep transformation. So, a few years later, um, I was practicing practicing pretty diligently and I had a specific process of my technique that I was kind of you know getting good at but it was it was what I was what I knew um, at that time and it served me well but I was feeling okay I, I really need a teacher to help guide me I didn't have anyone that I could work with and, and help me continue to unfold and had gone back to India and met someone at that time that said there was this young teacher who was teaching in, in Burma. His teacher had just passed away, and now this guy is, is teaching. That was Saino Utejaniya. And just a little languaging about how he just he likes people to be natural and to practice or something like that. And I thought, that's it. I'm, that's where I'm going. I didn't know anything. I didn't know where Burma was. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew I could get a ticket, and ah, that's great. I'll go there. So I had one more retreat left in India. I did it, and then off I went. And 
you know, the thing that struck me when I first met Saito, and I think this maybe can be true for a lot of people when they meet a teacher that they really um, respect, is that I was meeting this Burmese monk that I didn't know anything about the culture, about the language. I didn't know where it was geographically. And I felt more understood in that first conversation and through a translator in a certain way than I had ever felt. I mean, my my family connections are very strong. And yet to be understood on the level of the way things are and it wasn't obviously because he knew my mind. It was because he had looked at his mind so deeply you know, and so regularly for so many years that it was just so clear to him what was, what was going on for me and, and how, to, you know, how to relate. There's that universal universality of our minds that connects us. You know, that as we look and as we watch we see and discover these universal truths. You know, and it really what's what allows us to feel that close. And I think of, of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Every crowd He comes to, you can just see it. He just is right there. And it's as if He's looking at His best friends and He doesn't know anyone sometimes. He's just looking out and, and He says, you know, that, that warm-heartedness, that connection that already understands just as you want to be happy, or just as I want to be happy. So I understand that's your wish, too. I had gone to Burma not really with any, well, I had no idea. I had no no expectation. I didn't know really much about this teacher, um, it was open-ended. I didn't know if I'd stay for a couple days, a couple weeks. Um, I stayed for two years. And after, after a week or two, um, being in the culture there, I really just felt drawn to taking robes and ordaining, and particularly under someone like that that held it just so, so spaciously. And... Yeah, so just want to share a little bit about the ordination and, and that experience of taking on a monastic life for a little while, and not so much from being a monk, but for that period that I knew so clearly what my highest aspiration was. As soon as that, the robes were put on, every time I looked down, it was so clear. It's like the role of this mind and body at this moment is to awaken, right? is to to be aware, to notice, to watch that all the generosity of, of those who are serving, you know, the monastic community and monks, the nuns, the lay people, everyone, you know, that we're all getting this support and that. I have this, you know, this support in order to practice. And it was just from, just from wearing the robes that 
never left for two years that sense of what my my purpose was and I was just thinking a few weeks ago my uh, partner and I you know we have it's our intention to constantly recommit to the um, our highest aspiration to really live nobly to develop our minds and hearts and yet, if you look around our apartment, that would not be the message. The message would be, well, close our very high priority, big dressers, big dining room table, lots of food, and you know the bed is luxurious, and all the messages that the, the space is telling us, you know, just a very simple level was, well, what is the highest priority, even though we had our sitting spots and whatnot? And just a very simple act of, we just decided, you know what, let's just clear everything out of the bedroom that's not, other than the sleeping, the sitting. And so we did that, and it was extraordinary, just in having that extra space cleared out, the influence now that that has on the space. And I was just thinking how that, for me, was very similar to what happened in taking the robes, was it made a very clear intention to really be you know, intentional about the practice and intentional about my, my life and my choices. I want to do a, share a, a story that happened just as I was, well, it happened just as I was arriving to the monastery there, and it continued to happen throughout my stay, which was, so after meeting Sayadaw, and I was uh, walking outside, and a monk came up to me and started talking. Monk from Sri Lanka, lovely, lovely man, and started talking to me, and he was telling me about the life there and going on and on. And it went on and on. And it went on. And it was hour after hour. And we kept talking. He kept talking. So he brought me back into his room. We were talking. At that time, the lights would often, at night, the generator would, would give out. And he was talking, and then the, light gave, the lights gave out. And he kept talking. And so there we were sitting in the dark, <laughs> and he was talking. And so, okay, wow. So, and I thought, well, this is, this is amazing. Like, this monk really sees, you know, who he sees, um, this is special. Like, I'm, this is my first real conversation with a monk. This is wonderful. Well, it turned out it wasn't about me because this particular um, yeah, monk had a condition of some sort where once he started talking, it was <laughs> almost impossible for him to stop. And he, he had a gift of ending his pauses where he would take a breath at a place that would be obviously impolite and rude to break it off. And so you couldn't, you couldn't get in there. So it took me a while to know that uh, this is what was going on. And so plenty of times as my, you know, practice was getting, you know, I was getting, you know, really into it and I'd be in the hall practicing, you know, I don't want to you know, lose my momentum and I'd, I would 
you know, look out the meditation hall, <laughs> look at the street and see, you know, is it, is it clear? <laughs> so I'd, I'd leave and go out and, you know, try and get back to the room. And invariably, he would step out, you know, and, and the process would, would go on. So, there's a teaching in this. <laughs> I, had, I, had an, I had an understanding. At some point, as, this, as one, during one of our epic conversations, <laughs> I just kept hearing this voice in my mind and this eagerness. I really want to get back to the hall. I really want to get back to the hall. I, I, this, I don't want to be here. And at some point, I could really see very clearly that that was just aversion and thoughts. And then, then there were sounds, and then there was seeing. And the whole sense of being in this open space and a conversation that didn't need to change at all. And it transformed how I thought about what, and this is what Sayadaw was, Ritajaniya wants to encourage, which is when you don't have a special sense of where practice happens, you know, that it's not about this or that, and that he leaves the environment open. I wonder if he planted this. (laughs) (laughs) But he leaves it open, you know, for the possibility to have those kinds of discoveries, that the process is not about continuing to get what we want and get you know, back to the hall and you know, get all quiet and easy, but to actually see the mind that is operating in the ordinary moment of being stuck in, in a situation. And when the mind saw it, it was the last time I had aversion with him. I just felt that I could just be with him I could just really practice. I would tune in and out as I wanted. I'd listen a little bit, but mostly I'd just be there, present. It's okay if he wants to talk, great. And I could develop incredible amount of stillness and, and openness and sensitivity when I stopped struggling. And that took, it, that didn't happen, that, that just took a lot of episodes, but at some point the hook you know, was un, undone on that on that. Circumstance. So. And um, we've been talking a lot about uh, momentum in practice and the benefits of momentum and the continuity of just by lightly checking the quality of the mind to do that in such a way that that becomes a natural um, habit of the mind. Right? Instead of the doing, the awareness, personal effort, which we need to do enough that there's awareness, but then that sense of checking the, ma- the mind, just checking lightly, to really get the, that momentum going. So we've been talking about that a lot. The reason why for Seidel, he, he really emphasizes that, is we really get to see how the mind is working. And we see the, the kind of moment-to-moment causes and conditions or the cause and effect process of things that are happening. And oftentimes, you know, it's out of the blue. We don't expect certain insights to arise, some deeper understanding. Sainal talks about his own, you know, ordinary thing. I don't know if we mentioned in this hall about, you know, he was in and taking 
a bath and using soap and, you know, he had that scent of smell. You know, it's like, oh, smelling the soap. Did, did we talk about that here? And, and so he, he had this profound understanding. Oh, it's the nose that smells. It's the nose that smells. And he was, you know, really telling this, you know, this group of us. And we were looking at him like, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't, of course, that, you know, we smell with our nose. It was a, a, a layer of understanding of just the nature of it. The nature of it. The nature of smelling. The impersonality of it. I don't know for him deeply what it was, but some deep understanding. The ordinary process of seeing. Right? And just by being with his experience, don't know how some understanding will arise. And I was thinking about, for me, there was a time when I was, um, I was in, as a monk still, and I had gone to Thailand for some practice, and I was in the forest. And I was walking, you know, and there's a, a trail that had gone up, and they had put some steps. And I was walking up the steps, be mindful. And I was about to step on the next step and I stopped. And there was this mass of something about the shape of a football or so, large football. And I did say, what is the mind, the mind just stopped. Was like, and it was, I could see it. The mind was trying to figure out what is that? What is it? And it couldn't figure it out. And to have the mind so clear, so aware and awake, and yet perception couldn't resolve what it was looking at. So it made out some colors, some colors and bands, and then I saw an eye. (laughs) And then there are two more eyes. Wow, what is that? And I stepped back, and slowly my mind was making out what this thing was. I could start to see there was a green ribbon making out of this green snake. It was wrapped around a gecko that had bit on the head, and the gecko had bit the snake on the neck, and they were in lock. They were locked down. And it was a package. <laughs> and so I just stepped back. And What's happening? Of course, I don't know where I'm going to go. What, anyways, I don't know where to go. So what is, what's, wow. So interested. I was very interested in seeing that my mind was just in that space of a perception, trying to figure out what's going on. And that it was a natural function. There was that. And then I was very curious about this story. And I had no idea who was alive. Were they both alive? Did they mutual in destruction? <laughs> what, had, what had gone on? And after some minutes passed, the snake released its grip, lifted its head up, looked at me for a while, and I was just frozen. I was a few steps away. So it's clearly a poisonous snake, and I didn't want to come anywhere close to it. And I was just still, and I had to wait quite a long time for him to realize that I was not anything to worry about. And he kept doing his snake, you know, I think they try and get the scent with their, their their tongue. So after he felt confident that I was just there, he unraveled and slowly dislocated, I think, his jaw, opened it up, 
and started to envelop this gecko. Mm -hmm. And I just watched the whole process, and every time I was even slightly moving, and particularly once the gecko was started to be in him, I mean, for him, is I suppose, I don't know emotionally if snakes have emotions, but for him is a very vulnerable place. Like, you know, if, if I'm dangerous to be half swallowing, you know, a gecko, and then, but then to just watch this gecko move through the, into, you know, becoming the snake. You know, this, this is going to be some process of digestion. I'm sure there's a lesson in there. I don't know what that part of the lesson is. <laughs> so... Um, and I just want to share another nice story just towards the end of my stay I had a chance to travel with Sidal up to the north and the two of us were visiting um, a recluse um, American who ha- had been a monk and then he decided to kind of follow make his own rules very uh, I thought that's I like that style. Make your own rules as a monk, because a lot of them, a lot of the rules are not like you know. I'd love to change some of the rules, be more fun. But anyways, he had he had crafted his own rules. So he wasn't quite a monk, but he was a hermit living living uh, in central Burma, and he had for years been living in a hollowed out tree, and he had left that living quarters and had created another shelter for himself in down the forest a bit. And so when we went to visit, Saadal was staying in town and I I was really interested to stay in this tree. I wanted to be a tree-dwelling monk for a little while. I thought, that's pretty interesting. I'd love to do that. So anyways, I moved into the tree. It had a door, like a screen door. <laughs> so I, I would sit in there and there was this root that was just outside the door. And after rainfall, we'd collect some water. And I would notice, as I would sit inside, I would come in, you know, and usually as a human being, you make a lot of disturbance in the forest and all the animals kind of disappear. So it's like, oh, we're all the, where's all the creatures? They're not here. And so I would, I'd go in, I'd sit down. And as I would sit there, you know, Half an hour would pass, even within the first few minutes. First few minutes would come, and the birds, it was just the same routine. The birds that had the most kind of energy and really active, the really small ones, very quick, they'd come darting in, you know, go back to the bird bath and then dart away. And I'd just continue sitting, and that activity would keep going, and then some bigger birds, a bit slower birds, and quieter creatures started coming out quieter until birds that I would never have otherwise seen would take the longest time to start to, I could just sense them, they were, you know, positioning themselves, slowly trusting that as these other, you know, the quicker moving creatures were moving forward, there was a sense of ease and they would start to, to land. And I know that, you know, in Dharma, we often make these metaphors around the sort of patience that the practice entails. And as I sat there and really watched this process unfold of how the nature starts to slowly reveal itself, it's just such a deep reminder for me that it's not a fast process, you know, that it really does take a lot of time 
to be with our life circumstances, to, you know, the, the immediate things that we start to notice, of course, they'll come right up. And then there's a reason why as we stay on retreat for longer periods, some of this territory that wouldn't otherwise surface, you know, it starts to have a chance to come up. And it's because we've let things start to evolve. You know, that's sort of this shared space that we're creating together. A year ago, um, this was a f- I was on a assisting retreat, one of the first retreats I had assisted on. And I had to uh, leave the retreat early. I had had some family commitments. And so I had gone home, and uh, it was a day or two before the retreat ended. So took the flight back, and it was a night flight having me arrive very early, like at 1 in the morning or 12 at night, really right in the middle of the night. And so I had family pick me up, and I was driving back. And so I was in that sensitive space, you know, having come from retreat like this one. And I was driving the car, and on my drive... A deer stepped out in front of the car. And so I had written a note to the yogis who had been on that retreat because I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to them. And that experience happened the night that I left. And so I was just writing an email to them to kind of say I was still connected with them and to share what I had just been through as a kind of sharing. And so I thought I'd just... read that letter Um, so I wrote hello friends and I do feel that way now about you all so hello friends sorry to leave you so early it was a privilege to sit with you hear your raw and honest reports and to talk with some of you directly I wanted to share with you something that happened this evening On our way back from the Baltimore airport, a deer stepped in front of the car. I was driving. For the next 30 minutes, I kneeled quietly in the night meadow as she struggled to stand over and over again, but collapsing each time. I found myself whispering, oh, my friend, I'm so sorry. And take all the time you need. There's no rush. Take all the time you need. I held metta in my heart for the deer, and I held metta in my heart for myself. When the time came, I kneeled by her and placed my hand on her wounded body as she slowly parted. Tears fell, tears of openness, of allowing, of sorrow, of feeling into the tender space. What I really wanted to say is that life is precious. You know that already. Keep practicing. It opens and transforms the heart. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.